Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Vince. I am one of the elders here, the teaching pastor. If we have not met, I would love to meet you at some point. Grab your Bible, turn to Exodus. Exodus 12 is what we're looking at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there near you. Uh, Exodus is near the front of your Bible, so if you are not familiar with your Bible, that's fine. You can grab it and turn near the front. Exodus chapter 12, we'll be working through much of it, not all of it, this morning. Um, As we think about Thanksgiving, uh, I was thinking about this this week, it's become a a pretty commercialized, um, hallmark kind of holiday, where the um, consumption of food that we wouldn't normally eat is just there, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't put those things together and let them like all ooze into each other and then eat them. But for some reason, at Thanksgiving, we do. But, but here's what I was thinking. It, it, the very name of the holiday ought to do something in us as followers of God. The, the very uh, idea of the holiday ought to do something in us, I understand that that the holiday may um, may or, or or may not do anything for for you um, the, the actual holiday, but but the idea of giving thanks ought to be our trademark, right? It ought to be the thing that that we are most known for giving thanks to a God who is overall. In fact. Now, I don't know how to get through the passage we have to get through this week in Exodus 12 without being drawn into a deep, deep gratitude for all that God has done, especially when it comes to the gracious gift of salvation, that this is God's story of redemption. And so before we, before we even get into the text, can we, can we just simply sit in the, the, the beautiful truths of the gospel that lead us to seeing, I think, with clearer eyes, uh, Exodus 12. In the ongoing story of Exodus, we have two groups of people, don't we, so far? In the ongoing story, we have two groups of people. One group of people is an idolatrous people, worshiping pagan gods, following the evil and harsh rule of a dictatorial king. A king who is considered in their area a a god. That's one group of people. The other group of people has been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, being treated harshly under the evil king of, uh, of that time. They've been trapped in a land that's not their own, and they're awaiting release from slavery, which they have been promised, release that will be enacted uh, by the good and powerful hand of God, the God, Yahweh. This same good and powerful God has promised these people a good and plentiful land. There are two groups of people so far in the story of Exodus. The Egyptians and the Israelites. 
And here's my question. Which group of people deserves the favor of God? Which group of people deserves God's gracious hand of protection and provision? Here's, here's the answer to that question. Neither group, right? Neither group. I think we begin to move through the book of Exodus and we see the evil and we see the atrocities that are happening and we see the, the tragedies through the plagues and we, we see the, the, the evil coming from a, a tyrannical king and we know the story well enough. And so our minds shift toward the idea that the Israelites are finally going to get what they deserve. Finally, they're going to be released. Does anybody else go there? Where you begin to think, oh, oh, here's the story, here's the climax. They, they finally get what they deserve. I, I'll confess, I, I've gone there over and over, even in these last weeks as I've, I've studied and thought about these passages, right? Where I, I begin to think, oh, what a nightmare of a situation, but soon the Israelites are going to get from God what, what they deserve. They're finally going to get redemption, which is what has been promised to them. And because it's been promised to them, they, they deserve it. it, it has anyone else gone there? But listen, that's not the truth of the gospel, is it? That they deserve it? The Egyptians and the Israelites both are a sinful people. We often think of the Egyptians as idol worshipers who oppose God. They're filthy scum, right, as we read through this story. But we're also told that the Israelites were idol worshipers when they were in Egypt. Did you know that? In the book of Joshua, we're, we're told Joshua is telling the people, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So what's Joshua saying? He's saying, yeah, your people were worshiping idols as they sat in Egypt. And so they are, are worshiping other gods. And then right after that it is the famous verse that so many people have on plaques right by their front door. Right? Uh, and and it, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, the, your gods, your father served in the region beyond the river or, or the gods of the Ammonites, Amorites in, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Listen, if you have that on a plaque, don't rip it down. But that plaque is about pagan idolatry, right? It's about pagan idolatry that, that the people of God were involved in while they were in Egypt. While they're in Egypt awaiting the promised release, the, the promises of God to be released from slavery. So here's my question again. Which group of people deserves the favor of God? Which, who deserves God's protection and provision? Who deserves redemption? Because both groups of people are a sinful, God-opposing mess. But both groups. Now let me include us. You and I, and our neighbors, and our family members, and our co-workers, and, and all the people that we can think of, are sinful. You and I are, are, are the people that, that are sinful. And also those people you don't really like and the people who you think are undeserving of God's favor. You know that person who's wronged me over and over and over that person. 
Even that person. We're all a sinful mess and we're all deserving God's wrath. Ultimately, ending in our death. We're all in need of grace. Now you're thinking, well, how is this a good Thanksgiving story? Um, Listen, that's the gospel truth. That is the gospel truth from the book of Exodus that, that, that many want to avoid. We, we want to avoid that truth. The world around us does not want to hear that they're destined for death because they didn't live up to some standard that God put in place for them. The, the world doesn't want to hear that. And I would say even this, sadly, the church, even in our city, doesn't want to hear that. It doesn't want to talk about the, the fact that, that God has put things in front of us that we should be obeying and that we deserve death because we cannot keep those standards. Sadly, the church, even in our city, but we cannot avoid those things if we're reading the Bible. Right? If we're reading the Bible. The truth of it is that our desperate need is that we are, are sick in sin and in opposition to God and that is all over the Bible. We, we see it over and over and over. Romans 3, 22, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now hold on, aren't, aren't there some who are good? Paul would disagree. Romans three ten. none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So there's got to be consequences, and there are. Romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death. For everyone Well, he goes on, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we could go on, that's just Romans. So listen, the the truth of the gospel from the word of God, not from the mouths of men, not from me, uh, from the word of God is that we're all desperately in need of redemption. So here's my question. Who deserves God's protection and provision? No one. No one deserves it. But by faith through grace, God saves. This is God's story of redemption. And that's what we see this morning. That's what we see this morning in this final horrific plague that's put in front of us. God provides. God provides. So if we're thinking about giving thanks... This is a passage that must shove us in that direction, that God provides. There's no other way around it that God has to provide. He does provide. In a a week where a holiday has been placed in front of us, we of all people, those whom, whom God has graciously drawn to himself and then saved, we of all people are a people who must be knocked to our knees in thanksgiving that God provides. And so this morning, we look at Exodus 12, piece by piece, showing that God provides. If you remember where we've been, Pharaoh will not let the people go. He, he will not let the people of Israel go. So, so God brings plague after plague after plague, nine total plagues to show his power. And still Pharaoh's heart is hard and he will not let the people go. So God, through Moses, communicates what will happen next. Remember this from last week. At midnight, God himself will go through all of Egypt, taking the lives of the firstborn of Egypt. There is no distinction. Firstborn of the poor, firstborn of the rich, firstborn of every single animal, even Pharaoh's firstborn. The final plague has been announced. That's what we walked through last week. And now in the opening verses of chapter 12, we see that God provides. We'll see five things that God provides. First, God provides instructions for his people. 
God is going to be actively engaged in this plague and he's calling his people to be, to be actively engaged as well. Engage in the process. God provides instruction. So look at verse 1 of chapter 12. We'll read some. Verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. God provides instructions for His people. First, God says to Moses and Aaron, what is about to happen will, will begin a new way of life through a new calendar for you. I don't know if you caught that. When these events happen, they will mark what will now be the first day in your year. The thought is that there are many different cultures and many different religions based on, on gods and, and their farming schedules and so on. And God says, no more. Uh, for you, this event will be so crucially central to who you are as a people that your calendar will be circled uh, around it. Uh, God is providing instructions for His people that will not just shape how they live, but they will continue to shape how they worship into the future. And God continues. Uh, on the tenth day of this month, every household will get a lamb. If the, the household is too small, they partner up with their nearest neighbor. Depending on how, how many people there are in total, they'll go together, they'll get a lamb. So, so they get a lamb. God is providing instructions, instructions for the people to be involved in the process. What kind of lamb? God provides instructions there too. In verse 5, we're told that the lamb must be without blemish. A, a one-year-old male. It, it, cannot, it, it can be from the sheep or the goats. You'll need to keep the lamb until the 14th day. So do some math there. Four days, you'll take care of that lamb. And many have said that the family would, because of the makeup of their houses, would bring the animal into their home. That they would feed it and take care of it, and probably many of the children would become attached to it as part of the family. You've certainly had that happen, right? Where you get a whole new set of, of baby chicks, and you hold them, and you pet them, and you name them, and you bring them into your house, and you set them on your lap, and you take pictures of them, and you send them to me, right, Josh? I mean, maybe. They're just for instance. You begin to, to bring those in. This animal was part of the family for four days. And on, on that fourth day, every household will kill that animal at twilight. So there are 
their, their exact instructions. And then God provides instructions about how the lamb should be prepared and how the lamb should be eaten. Instructions to the finest detail of what you should wear when you eat it. But before those instructions are given, what instructions come before that? Look at verse 7. Before he gives instructions of how they should dress, look at verse 7. You shall take some of the blood from this lamb and put it on the two doorposts in the lintel around the doorframe of that house. The blood should be painted. We'll see this here in a bit, but that will be the way the people of God are marked for redemption. It's as if God is saying, yes, this is how you're going to do it, but first things first. First things first, make sure you've got that doorframe covered with blood. First things first. And then God provides instructions about how everything should be done so that they could get out of there quickly. You roast that lamb over a fire. Don't use any pots or pans. You don't want to clean those up. Don't eat it raw or boiled. Roast that thing, all of it with its legs and its inner parts. Don't spend time sectioning out uh, lamb chops or, or leg of lamb. Roast the whole thing and be ready. Roast the whole thing. Have some unleavened bread, no time for it to rise. Have some bitter herbs, those are readily available. Eat it all, no leftovers, no Tupperware, no Gladware, nothing. Eat it all. If there is anything left, you burn it. God is giving specific instructions for the people. This is a matter of faith for the people, isn't it? All the way through these detailed instructions, what we see most is that God is calling the people to trust Him. Because I can imagine I'm hearing these detailed instructions and I'm thinking, can we just go? Think about it this way. Think about the lamb that, that he's required. Does a lamb that has black spots on it taste any different than a lamb that is all white? Does a lamb that has one ear that, that sort of turns down and one that sticks up, does that lamb taste any different? No, they're, all, they're both delicious, right? It, but God has instructions. These detailed instructions are God calling His people to trust in Him, to trust in His provision of redemption that is coming and trust Him with the process of the exodus from Egypt. God is providing what He is demanding. And so He says, roast that lamb, be ready. Also, fasten your belt, keep your sandals on your feet, have your staff in your hand. All three of those things were atypical for family life in the home. Uh, when entering the home, they would often take off their belt, their outer garment. Uh, those were their work clothes, right? So for us, you slip into your sweatpants. That's what they're, they're doing. Um, those outer garments were then all cinched together with a, a belt. They took off their sandals because the streets and the fields were, were filthy. The staff was not an inside tool. They, they probably left it at, at the door. They, they were, those were used for directing animals in the fields. God provides instructions for them. Why? So that they would be ready. I was trying to think about that this week. So for me, this is the way that would work. When I get home, I either park my bike in my garage or I pull my car onto my driveway. I walk inside with my bag, with my computer or bag full of books. And my, I, I put my keys and my wallet and my phone in, in a basket right by the front door. And I often take off my shoes. So the instructions for me, if God was writing this for me, would be leave your car running in the street. Keep your bag slung over your shoulder, your wallet and your phone in your pocket, and your shoes on. Be ready. God has instructions for them. He says, be ready. Eat with your family, with your neighbors. Eat. And then we're told in verse 11, I want you to look there. Eat quickly. 
Why? Look at that last part. This is the Lord's Passover. Be ready. This is the Lord's Passover. So God provides instructions for His people, instructions through the entire meal and the way that it has to be prepared and the way that it has to be eaten, instructions given to be followed to show what? To show a deep trust in what God is about to do. God is specific about all of the details leading up to His own worship. That's the point, right? It's leading up to His own worship. If you remember, that's the point of this entire release from slavery, the worship of God. God didn't say, hey, I'm going to free you. Everybody run. That's that's not what He said. He said, I'm going to free you so that you can worship Me and I've got the details for you exactly. Will you be faithful? Will you be faithful. These instructions are all with the end goal of worship in mind. We'll see how this hits us, us, here in in a second. But let's continue reading. Look at verse 12. It says, for I, this is God still, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God provides instructions. And then this was hinted at in the previous passage, but but God also provides a substitute. He provides a a substitute. God says again in verse 12, I'm going to go through the land of Egypt on the same night and I'm going to strike down all the firstborn humans and animals. Not only that, but I'm going to bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. This slavery and this opposition is going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. And God gives the reason why at the end of verse 12. He says what? I am the Lord. Or the emphasis, no, 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 I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And then the rationale for the blood on the doors is given. The blood on the doorframe is a sign. God says, it's a sign for you, and it's a sign for me. It's a sign for you, and it's a sign for me. The blood is a sign for the people in that it is a faithful act of obedience indicating trust in God's plan and provision. It's a sign for them. The blood is a sign for the people and for God. The the blood's a sign for God in that when He sees the blood, He will pass over that house, sparing that family the death of their firstborn. The blood is a sign for the people and for God. The blood was God's way of providing a substitute. And this is one of the pieces I think we, we see so clearly the gospel. God provided a substitute for the people. He provided a, a way of escape of certain and deserved death. The blood of the lamb covering the doorframe stood in place of their own blood being shed. What they deserved, what you and I deserve, again, is death. The blood on the doorframe stood in place as a marker of death already happening as a substitute of the certain death that was deserved. This all points forward to 
what? To Jesus. It all points forward to the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus. Jesus is the perfect substitute. The blood of the Lamb or a goat was a substitute for the people in Egypt, sparing them from the death of their firstborn. This points forward to the perfect Lamb that was slain as a substitute for all sin. What happened with the the blood of the Lamb on that night is a shadow of what was to come. But what does Hebrews 10.4 tell us? It tells us this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Talking about the sacrificial system, but we have to see that here, for it's impossible for, for that blood to take away sins. It, it was a substitute. It did not take away sins. It simply stood in the place as a temporary thing that night. It was a temporary substitute. Now because of Christ's shed blood on the cross, Christ being our substitute, our sins are paid for, not temporarily, but ultimately. So that we can have a worship relationship with God. Now, this talk of sin and blood and death is quite a turnoff, isn't it? Here I am, I've spent the last like 15 minutes talking about death and what we deserve and blood and all of that happening, going down, and that's a turnoff. It's a discussion that is a turnoff um, even for people who are looking in at Christianity. Why all this talk about blood? Why all this talk about death? It's becoming a turnoff for many who have been in Christian circles for years. We like to believe that Jesus is a good teacher and that He has come to be light to a dark world, to to be an example for us. We, We like to talk about those things, but when it comes to His brutal, bloody, atoning death that was necessary because we are wicked sinners deserving death, we begin to shy away. But listen, friends, Jesus shed his blood. He he stood in our place as our substitute, just like the Israelites needed the blood of the lamb on their door frames. We need the shed blood of Christ, the perfect lamb. He is the substitutionary atonement for our sins. And he is that through his blood being shed. The, The blood of Exodus points forward to the blood of Christ as our substitute. We cannot sanitize that. I wish I could talk around that in some way, but still bring home the the point of of that truth. Christ's blood being shed, Christ being our our substitute, it's all over the the New Testament. And it's celebrated. Romans 5, 9, we've been justified by His blood. Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption and forgiveness through His blood. Hebrews 13, 12, we are sanctified through His blood. 1 Peter 1.18, we are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of our sin. The blood, the blood, the blood. It's throughout the entire New Testament. God provides the substitute. In the case of the blood on the doorframe, who deserves that substitute? No one. In the case of Jesus shed blood, who deserves that substitute? No one yet. God provides grace upon grace, lavished upon us. It is nothing we have or have not done. Salvation, redemption, justification, ransom, sanctification, all rest on the all-sufficient power of the blood of Christ. In the Exodus... 
God provides instructions to be followed, and God provides a substitute for certain death. All of that we know uh, now, ultimately met in Christ. That is absolutely worthy of celebration, isn't it? I know that sounds strange. The blood is worthy of celebration, but God is providing the reason for our celebration. Something to remember. Look at verse 14. We'll continue reading. Verse 14 of chapter 12. This day, this is God, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Now that makes perfect sense to us, doesn't it? No, that is difficult, but God is providing a reason for celebration. That's the point. There is a memorial meal that, that's pointing towards celebration. He says, this is a memorial day that you shall keep from generation to generation to generation. It's ongoing. Keep it. Just like you were not to eat leavened bread on the night of the Passover, you shall establish a seven-day celebration of no leaven in your bread. This will be observed as a feast of unleavened bread, a set-aside celebration celebrating what celebrating that god provided a substitute in the form of blood of a lamb on the doorframe that led to the redemption of the people of from egypt this was to be celebrated every single year year after year god is the one who's providing the reason for our celebration and he is the one who provides the instruction for uh, their celebration that that celebration was carried out then for centuries jesus himself would celebrate the passover and celebrate the feast of unleavened bread with his disciples we're told in in matthew 26 that on, on the first day of the celebration of unleavened bread jesus gathered with his disciples one who would betray him one who would deny him, we're, we're told in Matthew twenty six twenty six. we're told this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, for the disciples, this would have completely thrown them because year after year after year after year for centuries they have been celebrating this very thing for centuries they've been uh, celebrating this very thing on that exact same day representing the celebration of the exact same thing freedom from egypt It, it would be like one of our, I was trying to think through a good example, and I'm going to try this one out on you. If it doesn't go well, I'll, I'll uh, not do this in the second service. 
It would be like this. One of our American leaders, you choose the one that you would like to choose, um, standing up on Independence Day, which happens when? On the, the 4th of July, saying, Today we celebrate by waving our American flags. These 50 stars represent a different flavor of ice cream, and these 13 stripes represent a different topping for those ice creams. Today we celebrate ice cream. No? Okay, so that didn't work. A a total reinterpretation of the symbol of something that we've been celebrating for years and years and years, right? This was a, a completely different idea for the disciples, and Jesus said this bread is not a celebration of the exodus from Egypt. This bread is my body. He goes on to say the wine is his blood. Jesus takes what has been centuries of remembrance that have marked in their minds a celebration of redemption, of slavery from sin. And he redefines it to be a remembrance and celebration of redemption from sin through his body broken and his blood shed once and for all. The Feast of Unleavened Bread given to the Israelites by God was a shadow of what was to come in the celebration of eternal life given to all who put their hope and their faith in God. Which is exactly why we do this celebration weekly. The Lord's Supper is not an insignificant practice. So we're joining in uh, the celebration of centuries having now been redefined by our Lord and Savior Jesus, the greater and perfect mediator, the, the, the greater and, and more perfect Moses. This is not something that, that we take lightly. God provides a reason for us to celebrate. In the events of the Exodus, God is providing. We see it. He's providing. He's providing. He's providing. He he provides instruction. He provides a substitute. He provides a reason to celebrate. And and as strange as it may sound, God also provides a means of discipleship in it. He provides a a means of discipleship. There's this built-in way for us to continue to communicate the truths of God. Look at verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land and the Lord will, that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Do you see that? 
There's a means of discipleship that God has provided. Moses now instructs the people of Israel to do everything that has just been discussed. Go select the lamb, kill the lamb, take a branch and dip it in the blood and paint the doorframe with that blood. Stay in your house until the morning. The Lord is going to pass through all of Egypt, taking on the Egyptian firstborn. But when the Lord sees blood on your doorframes of your houses, the Lord will pass over your house. That's where we get the name Passover, by the way, if you didn't. Know that, put that together. The Lord will pass over your house. In this, God is providing a means of discipleship. There's this built-in way for us to communicate the truths of God's saving work. We're told in verse 24, you shall observe this right as a statute, or you shall you shall put the, the blood on your doorposts and carry out all of the Passover requirements for you and your sons. You have an obligation, not just for yourself, but for your family, for those in your care. This is built in. And God says, when you get to the land that I've promised you, keep doing these things as a means of discipleship. Your children will ask you, because they won't remember, your children will ask you what you're doing, and you'll be able to tell them what God has done. You'll be able to look back and say, this is why we do this. This is what God has done. This is an ongoing way for you to communicate, to, to, to disciple your children. This is an ongoing way for you to communicate the truths of God to those in your care. Now listen, this is a little bit of a roundabout application here, but this is one of the main reasons we enjoy and value children being in here during our worship gatherings. We may recognize that this is not the, we recognize this is not the, the only way uh, for children to, to learn. Right, we understand it's going to be loud and it's going to be distracting at times and clipboards are going to be dropped. And, um, but listen, you drop your coffee mug more than they drop their clip, clipboard, all right? So it's going to happen. It's loud. Uh, um, but, but it's a great way for them to learn. When, when they see baptisms like they saw last week, they have questions. And, and, and when they hear times of silence in prayer, which is strange, right, for children to hear silence, ever, ever. When they hear silence in, in prayer, they, they may have questions. When they see us gather around someone and lay hands on them and pray for them, when they see us walk to the front to take the bread and the wine, when they see us raising our hands when we sing, when they hear someone say amen, which never happens in here, but when they hear that, they, they, they are going to have questions. When they see an adult man crying during a song, they're going to have questions. And on and on. These are built-in opportunities for children to be discipled in the things of God. You're able to talk to them and answer questions about what is happening and then to point them to God. Kids, listen. Kids, if you're listening, wave to me right now. Wave to me. You better wave to me right now. When you have questions about something, here, here's my instruction. When you have questions about something that we're doing in here, ask your parents, what is going on? Why are we doing that? Say it quietly, but what, what is happening? Adults, parents or, or not, don't take that lightly. Even if you're not a parent, if one of the, uh, one of the kids next to you begins to ask their parents questions, don't take that lightly. 
This is weighty. We have a responsibility to point our children to the Lord. Listen, listen to this. I don't know if you can think through it in, in these ways. In the Exodus, as brutal as those events were, think about that. In the Exodus, those events were brutal. What would we do? We would probably shelter our kids from seeing some of those things, right? But God, the all-wise and sovereign God, built this in as a means of discipleship. Dad and Mom, why did you kill our pet lamb? Why are you now painting our door with his blood? Why do we have to eat fluffy? Right? Those questions are going on. Why are we eating this flat bread? It's worse than gluten-free. Why, why do you still have your work clothes on, Dad? Why is the car running in the, in the driveway? Why? These are questions that are built in. God, the all-wise God, has provided a means of discipleship through the instructions He's given so that our kids would ask questions. And we also want to be a place as a church where adults who don't understand will grow to understand what we're doing as we communicate over and over and over the, the truths that we see. This is discipleship. This is of God. And you see the end response. We're told at the end of verse 27, look there, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. That's the response of discipleship. The people bowed their heads and worshiped. Consider the context. The Lord is about to come through and take the life, but he's provided a substitute for those who have put the, the, the blood of the lamb on their doors. He, he's coming. Be ready. Stay inside. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. All of this pointing in the direction of worshiping God. God is providing a means of discipleship. Look at the last uh, verse, verse 29. We'll, we'll finish this out. God provides costly redemption. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. What God said would happen, happened. The Lord came through Egypt and took out all of the firstborn in the land, land, humans and animals, rich and poor, even Pharaoh's firstborn. Uh, But the people of Israel are spared. Pharaoh awoke in the night with a a great cry throughout all all of Egypt. He awoke to the reality that what, what God said would happen actually happened. Pharaoh lost his firstborn. Every house of Egypt faced that devastation. Every single house. So Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, get out of here. Go, you can take everything that's yours and and get out of here and bless me also. Get. Egypt is devastated. And Israel is spared. Egypt is devastated. And Israel is spared. Who was deserving? Think about that. The Israelite people are spared. Are they more deserving? 
Are they deserving at all? Aren't they a sinful people as well? Aren't they deserving of death as well? Salvation did not come to the houses of those who were deserving. Do you get that? Salvation didn't just come to the houses of those who were deserving. And at the same time, some of us may need to hear this. Salvation did not come to these houses because the people who knew they weren't deserving did the right thing to make it right, to become more deserving, right? God told us to paint our doors. We did it and we did it well. We even edged it, right? We we did it well. No, God gave a way to be saved. God provided a substitute. God provided salvation. Salvation rests in the blood of the Lamb, not in the action of the person. It was all provided by God. We've got to hear that this morning. Some of us may be in places where we're working hard to earn God's approval. Some of us may be working hard to earn God's favor. Some of you may uh, be in places where you believe that if you do what God has asked you to do, in that you are deserving. And that is exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. That's never ending. That goes on and on and on. And the beauty of and the reality of the finished work of Christ is this. By His blood, we have redemption and salvation. We have it. Not because we are deserving, but God, by His grace, has offered salvation through the blood of the Lamb, His Son, Jesus Christ. If not for Christ, our fate is just like the Egyptians, certain death. If not for Christ, our fate is just like the Israelites, certain death. But by the blood of Christ, we have been offered something we do not deserve. We have been offered something. That was a train pushing together. It's all fine. Let me say that sentence again. By the blood of Christ, we have been offered something we do not deserve. It's absolutely a week of thanksgiving, right? A week of, uh, of worship. Our response has got to be worship. Our response is to join the millions and millions and millions of angels and leaders and all living creatures as they gather around the throne as they gather around the throne saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This has always been the point of redemption. It's all headed toward that. It's all headed toward that, the worship and adoration of the Lamb. Let's pray. God, we um, gather around a a text like this that's hard to read at times. It's bloody, it's brutal, it's devastating for sure. And as we think through these things, our our minds can often shift toward um, questioning why you would do the things that you would do. But I pray that as we read through these things, we would see the beauty and the reality of the very fact that Jesus came that He was the Lamb that was to be slain, that His blood was to be shed so that we could be in relationship with You, that we could be in a relationship with the God of the universe who desires relationship with us. You have freed us from slavery to ourselves, to sin, to the enemy, through the precious blood of Your Son. God, I pray that we would not take that lightly that it would hit and sink in 
with the, the kind of severity and, and, and reality that we see in this text. Through the blood of the Lamb, your Son, one day we will gather around the throne and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In His name we pray. Amen.